last week. Snickersnee. Anybody have one of those? I'm giving up as a noun. Anybody know what that is? This was one of the words for the week this week. It's a knife. Specifically, a knife used as a weapon. All right? Next word. Enervate. Well, we have a very illiterate crowd here this morning. <laughs> Enervate. Yes, Trevor. Yes, yeah, to sap something of energy or to weaken something. So it could be a cheer. We're going to enervate you. We're going to, you know, you, we're going we're to weaken you. We're going to suck life out of you. This last word, this was the word of the day yesterday on dictionary. Gallumph. Anybody have an idea what that means? Galumph. I think it's actually the emphasis is the second syllable. All right, galumph. Sorry, galumph. It means to move along heavily or clumsily. And I'll give anybody a $5 gift card to an ice cream place if you use that in a sentence in a normal conversation this week. All right? If you use that, hey, I was just glumphing along, and they're going to be like, what would you just say? All right? Uh, but the word I was looking up, though, on dictionary.com is this next word right here. It's dysphoria. And dysphoria literally means the bear under. The opposite is Euphoria. And go to the next slider. So dysphoria literally means uh, it's a state of extreme distress, discomfort, or dissatisfaction. It's often used like in a clinical sense, but it's often, it's a, we all experience or have experienced or will experience dysphoria. Euphoria is when you're joyfully bearing something. Oh, you know, euphoric. But dysphoria is when extremely you're distressed, discomfortable, dissatisfaction, you don't like how your life is going, in a sense. You know, and there's even, in the Bible, there's times where, you know, we could say that uh, Abraham might have experienced dysphoria when God asked him to sacrifice his son, which, if you don't know the story, he didn't actually kill his son, but some degree, extreme distress and discomfort. Or when God told Moses he wanted to lead his people, Moses kind of responded in an extreme sense of dysphoria. He didn't like the reality he had to face. So he experienced extreme distress, discomfort, and dissatisfaction. So there's times where I think we all would say there's times where yeah, we experience that. We just, what the, the reality we're facing and the reality we experience isn't, doesn't feel good. All right? But this word is often used in the terms of sexual dysphoria. And you, if you weren't here last week, we're doing a series this week on some issues regarding to sexuality. So don't think I've just found a weird thing to throw up here but uh and again my guess is every one of us if we're honest would say there's times in our lives where we experienced an extreme sense of distress discomfort dissatisfaction with our sexuality it might be you know like when i was i didn't get married until i was 30 when i was 24 25 i remember being I would say, in a state of dysphoria in my sexual life, it's like, God, this isn't fair. Why do I have these strong drives now, but I have to wait till then, and I don't even know when then was. So whether you're single or married, I mean, my guess is if you're married, if you have like a normal marriage like everybody else does, sometimes the, the sexual drives of husband and wife aren't on the same plane. So one or the other might experience some kind of dissatisfaction or dysphoria. And we understand what that feels like. We, it doesn't feel euphoric. It's kind of the opposite. But specifically, uh, this word is often used in, the, in terms of gender dysphoria. 
and this gets to an issue of when people feel, which this may be the case with some here, I don't know, a dissatisfaction with your biological gender. We call them transgendered people or whatever. This is actually a clinical term that is used to talk about that. But I, but I use the other examples first because I want all of us to realize we all experience dysphoria in life. We all experience situations of somewhat significant distress, dissatisfaction, or discomfort. And often, if we're honest, it's directed toward God. Like, why, why, did, why is this happening to me? And there's a couple times in the Bible where it even kind of has a uh, conversation with God where somebody's saying to God, why'd you make me this way? And the analogy in the Bible is the pot is telling the potter that he made a mistake in how he made you or me. And my guess is there's probably times, gender identity aside, there's probably times where you've kind of wished God might have made you differently. Taller, shorter, fatter, skinnier, whatever. And we all have had these, maybe not even spoken or conscious conversations with God, where we really wish God would have made us differently. Because we want to be you know, prettier, more handsome, taller, stronger, faster, smarter, whatever. And you're not. But we all, we, we all know what that's like. And I used, the whole idea of gender dysphoria I'm using today because we're talking about, we're doing a series today, we started last week, go to the next slide here, and the series is just called, uh, go to the next one, Jesus, the Bible, Sex, and You. And if you were here last week, I made it really clear about what that meant and what it didn't mean. We're trying to figure out what would Jesus, how, how, do, how should we think about and live out our lives according to Jesus, because we say we're followers of Jesus, we're not just religious people. And Jesus believed the Bible, so what does the Bible say about our sexuality and what does that all mean? And what does it not mean? And one of the things I said last week, too, this is not about how to win the culture war. I'm, we're not, I'm not speaking to those people out there. I'm speaking to us, followers of Jesus. This is not about condemnation. This is not about trying to figure out why, you know, to pour on guilt to people. It's really about how do we live out what Jesus said we could be. The mission of Jesus was that you and I would be alive, awake, and free, and that includes our sexuality. Now, as this, let me just list four different assumptions. I made some of, the, I said some of these last week, and I'll probably state these in the next few weeks. All right, four assumptions about our sexuality, the Bible, G and Jesus, and how that all meshes together. All right. First assumption is this, and these are assumptions that I don't think anybody would challenge. But if you want to, you can let me know later. But I think they're all. First of all, if, if we're looking at it from the position of the Bible, understand the Bible. The first assumption is this, sex was God's idea. And I often add to people, it was quite a very good idea. All right? But sex, sexuality was God's idea. And if we're made in God's image, and we're sexual, then there must be a sexual component to God, which I know might throw you for a loop mentally, but it also may restate how we understand sexuality. It's maybe that part of us that is drive to be connected and intimate. All right? But sex was God's idea, and if it's God's idea, he has some say in that. Second uh, assumption is we all need sexual healing, every one of us. So we're not going to talk about these various sexual issues, whether it's transgender or homosexual or sex outside of marriage or adultery or pornography. or whatever. We're not going to talk about those things in a sense of we are better than X, right? We have a little sign over here that says, no contempt. We believe that the life of Jesus is meant to be left, lived without contempt. 
doesn't mean we don't distinguish what we believe God says is correct and life-giving behavior as opposed to uh, sinful behavior. Doesn't believe doesn't mean we don't do that, but we do it without a judgmental spirit. All right, so we all need sexual. Every nobody here is one hundred percent sexually whole in the way that God meant for you to be. That was the second assumption. Third assumption is this: Jesus is the most Jesus is the most sexually fulfilled person ever. And that also is one of those statements that should throw you for a little bit of a loop because if you if you remember correctly, Jesus never married. And as far as we know, and we absolutely believe, he never had physical sexual contact with somebody. But I believe he was the most sexually fulfilled person ever, which again may redefine sexual fulfillment for you. And the last assumption, the last statement I'll make that I'll kind of ground all this in is that God, the mission of Jesus for your sexuality is that you'd be absolutely holy and wildly free. And you often would think, well, those don't go together. Holy and free. Because we think holy means oppressed, repressed, prudish, puritanical. But holy, the way God God is unpacked in the Bible, absolutely holy and wildly free are two things you could push right together because it means the same thing. And the world has told us what free means in a way that God has defined it totally differently. Absolutely holy and wildly free. That's what his, that's his, that's his, and God's desire for you and for me is to have a deeply satisfying relational life with God and with others in the way that God has designed it, all right? So, last week we talked about uh, that God, we're made in God's image, and if we're sexual, that means we must, understand how, we must understand how God must have a sexual component to his personality, but today we're going to look at a different part of Genesis, and we're looking at Genesis because that's when God... The creative act of God happened in Genesis. He made, you know, animals, fish, sun, moon, stars. And God's quite creative. Um, and in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, it talks about the creation of humanity. And last week we looked where it said God made us in his image. And now we're going to look at the next kind of part of what it says. So in Genesis chapter 1, when it comes to the creation of man... This is what is said, because God basically says, we need, we need, creation isn't complete yet. And God actually says, let's make someone like us. And we don't know who the us is. We think, in a sense, he may be talking to the heavenly court in a sense. But this is what it says. So God created man, and the word man there really could be translated humanity. It's not a male gender there. It's just he created humanity in his own image. We talked about that, we talked about that last week. In the image of God, he created them. Read those last two lines with me out loud. Male and female, he created them. Those words have gender in the, in the Hebrew language. Male and female. So God created humanity, and he created us male and female. And it's really clear from the beginning that was God's intent. Incidentally, this is the first poem that occurs in the Bible. In the, nec- in the next phrase... Genesis chapter 2, just a chapter later, when God creates Eve, what Adam says is, this, is bone, this one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will called, be called woman because she was taken from man. And again, it's this sense of there's a unique difference in a man and a woman. The next one. 
This is the last one to look at passage-wise. This goes on from that previous one. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. All right? Man and woman, and this sets the foundation for Scripture's clear teaching that sexual expression is for a man and a woman for life. All right? So, so the Bible says there's a man and there's a female. Now, here's one of the things we get, can get stuck in. What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? I mean, does a man mean I have to go rock climbing and go, you know, kayaking in the rocky mountain rivers? And does a woman mean I have to be barefoot and pregnant? The, the Bible doesn't say those things. The Bible does have a clear sense of a difference between a man and a woman. And there's numerous passages where it talks about marriage. It talks about other things where you get a sense there's a difference with men and women. Total equality, but a different expression of the image of God in a man versus a woman. And sometimes some of our sexual identity dysphoria issues is because we're letting cultural things define what a man is and what a woman is. Because a man doesn't mean you have to play with army toys, and a woman, uh, being a woman doesn't mean you have to play with Betty Crocker, little kitchen, shake and bake, whatever. I can't remember all the toys we bought for our girls. I can't remember them all. All right, so, but there is a difference. The Bible is clear, and again, this is not a political statement. What I'm saying is this is what the Bible teaches. You may think otherwise, but what you think otherwise cannot be supported by the Bible. So we're not, I'm not arguing with someone who might think otherwise. All I'm trying to point out is the Bible doesn't give you the option of thinking otherwise. Man, woman, marriage, uh, lifelong. And this is unpacked in many other passages in the Scripture. Now, but here's what we're going to talk about. There's different ways you can look at this. You might know, as I, I know, you might know people uh, that would call themselves transgendered. Uh, you might know people that would say they have same-sex attraction, um, bisexual, whatever. There's a number of different terms out there that would say that the, there's male and female, but there's many variations along the spectrum, and so there's more than two genders. That's kind of what our culture tells us. Now, the Bible doesn't give us that option. I'm just saying that's, and you may know real people who have those real kind of issues in their lives, all right? There's three primary lenses we can look through when we look at this kind of issue. And let's talk about all three of them. First one is this. There's a lens of celebrate, which means you need to be true to yourself. If that's what you're feeling, that's what you need to do. So if you feel like you're a woman in a man's body, or vice versa, or if you feel a same-sex attraction then your feeling is truth for you, therefore that's what you ought to do. That's one of the lenses that we, that is, that this is looked through. It's the lens, I could even call it the lens of my orientation. Now, um, and I'll say this up front, this is, this is a lens that you may have, but you cannot support it by the Bible. And again, I'm not, this is no contempt, no judgment, not better than anybody else, but you cannot support this point of view by the, from the Bible. It's interesting, many years ago I had a conversation with a guy. His name was Charlie. Nobody knows him because he was in Bloomington years ago and he's been long gone. And he was a pastor. And he was telling me one time, well, Matt, it's wrong for you to say if somebody has a same-sex orientation, 
why would you deny them the right to live out their orientation and live how they feel? And I said, Charlie, I understand what you're saying, but can I tell you what my orientation is? My orientation is to have sex with as many women as possible. That's my orientation as a man. If I were to trust those part of my feelings, so I said, I believe spiritual maturity means sometimes there's things I'm feeling that I choose not to do because I believe God tells me there's a bigger yes by doing something different. He said, well, that's not the same thing. I said, no, it's the same thing. Because if my orientation is to pornography and lust, and I, why can't I have sex with more women than my wife? If that's my orientation, why would you tell me I can't do that because that's how I'm feeling? And we all understand that, that how that kind of seems kind of upside down to say it that way, but the reality is just because you feel something doesn't mean we should celebrate it. Because you would, if I were to tell you, well, I'm feeling this, so I should have sex with other women other my wife, I would hope you would say, well, no, no, you need to kind of be able to say no to that because there's something better God has for you. So the, the, the lens of this is what I'm feeling, uh, be true to yourself. Again, you may have that lens, and you may know people that have that lens, and that's, but you cannot support it by the, from the Bible. And again, that's what we're talking about. And you cannot support that by using Jesus because Jesus, in the New Testament, actually quoted those very verses we just read from Genesis. So we have a clear sense that Jesus believed and was grounded in the understanding of what Genesis had to say about men and women. So you might have a different point of view, but you cannot use Jesus or the Bible to support your point of view. You can't. All right? Now, there's two other lenses we can look through this issue with. Here's the first one, the next one. We can look through the lens of truth. And truth matters. We believe truth matters. Two plus two is four. Four plus four is eight, et cetera, et cetera. Truth matters. And there's, we believe that there's truth articulated in the Bible. So the truth of the Bible, if you unpack the whole thing, is that God, it, the, the design for God's understanding, your design sexually is sexual expression. And I mean sexual expression in the way now I'm talking about pure sexuality expression and intercourse and things like that. Sexual expression is reserved and is designed exclusively for a man and a woman in a lifelong commitment. That's, what the, that's the truth of what the Bible has to say. So that's the truth. But you know and I know just throwing the truth at somebody doesn't necessarily help them understand God better. I mean, if I, when I was 25, if somebody had told me, and I've told you before, there was times during that period of life I had struggled with pornography. If somebody would have just told me that, well, Matt, you know the truth is you just can't do it till you get married. I would have been like, I know that. What I'm trying to figure out is why I can't change. All right, you understand, tr throwing truth at people doesn't make people change. Truth needs to be part of the conversation, but the Pharisees were experts at throwing out truth at people. And they were arrogant because all they threw out was truth. All right? We all understand that you can't just change people from truth. Truth is not enough. It's important. Yes, this is what the Bible says about sexuality. And next week we'll talk about um, the next phrase where it says, the man and woman become one flesh. And so my working title for next week is, what in the world does sex have to do with marriage? So we'll talk about sex and marriage and what, that, what does the Bible say about that. But the truth of the Bible is 
one man, one woman, lifelong commitment is the only way in which God's designed for sexual. Now you might say, and this is one of the challenges I have when I've interacted with people, is I have a friend who's gay, I, I have a friend that's transgender, and the, one of them has said to me, well, what do you think about my homosexuality? And my, it's kind of tightrope, and you've been in those situations too. My standard response is, I, I don't believe that's God's best design for you. I don't believe that's God's best design for you. And sometimes I'll add, and, I, and I'm still growing into God's best design for me sexually, but I do believe God says one man, one woman for life, and, and there's all kinds of objections to that, but again, I'm saying this is what the Bible says. I'm not, trying to, I'm not saying I'm making a political po posture toward Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, or whatever. I'm saying this is what the Bible says. And it's what people have understood the Bible to say for years and years and years. Now, somebody might object, and here's what somebody, here's a common thing. Well, but isn't this like slavery? Because didn't Christians used to believe slavery was okay and use the Bible to support slavery in the Civil War? So isn't this just like that where we're now coming to a fuller understanding? It's actually somewhat historically inaccurate to say it was a small number of bigoted people who used the Bible to support their position on slavery. A large majority of Christians understood that the Bible did not support slavery. So to try to equate this issue in slavery is historically inaccurate because a large number of, it was the Christians who led the abolitionist movement, the end of slavery. So it's not the same thing, all right? But again, truth matters. But you know, and I'm, there was... Years ago, there was a, a meeting at town, City Hall here about some, some gay housing issue or something like that. And I was standing next to somebody, and I, I went kind of for the wrong reasons. I went to this large meeting because they wanted people to show up on both sides of the issue. It became kind of this cultural kind of yelling back and forth. And somebody, I remember a woman standing to a man next to me. And she said, are you gay? He goes, yeah, I'm gay. She said, do you understand that if you don't repent, you're going to go to hell? And he said, yes, I do. And she said, well, I've done my job. Your blood's not on my hand. And she walked away. And I thought, okay, biblically truthful statement spoken in, spoken in an absolutely biblically untruthful way because it was lacking something. That did not give God any pleasure when that person said that. Because what needs to happen is, let's go to the next one, the lens of mercy. What I find fascinating is, and I listened to a Christian radio station recently, not one you've listened to because it's not one in Bloomington. And one person said, we've got to we take a stand for truth on these issues about sexuality. And while I agree, have you ever heard anybody say, we need to take a stand for mercy on this? You probably haven't heard that, have you? But that's the very thing the Pharisees were angry at Jesus about. Because about, he took a stance for mercy while not negating or denying truthful and how God designed us, maybe we as followers of Jesus need to start thinking first about taking a stance for mercy at the same time with truth. But mercy is that sense of, it's kind of birthed out of empathy and love for someone else and understanding of their human condition. I haven't met a single gay person or transgender person who said when they were a little kid they, that's what they wanted to be when they grew up most of them would say I, I, I don't know I, I, wish, I wish I wasn't this way and I was reading this week an article from a, a, an academic article from a psychologist who deals with transgender people and they said it, we have to understand it is some, to some degree there's a brokenness that comes from broken humanity 
and all of our sexualities is broken. We're all, we all need healing, and for some reason there are some that, that have a struggle of transgendered or same-sex attractions that others of us don't have, but we all have struggles. So there's a degree of empathy with that, because in a sense, it's kind of like they said in the Safe Families videos, if I was born in a different biological body, maybe I'd have those same struggles. So for me to think I'm superior to them, and for me to say to somebody, you just need to stop being gay or stop being transgendered, doesn't really have the compassion of Jesus. Jesus was friend of sinners. He was friends with sexual sinners. He hung out with prostitutes. I remember a conversation I had with a, a friend of mine in Bloomington who's a gay man, and he actually said to me one time, this really shaped my thinking, uh, shaped my spirit, I guess. She said, he said, do you believe that when you pray that God does something in response to your prayers? Well, well yeah, yes, of course I do. That's, that's, that, that's the right answer, isn't it? And he's like, I don't. I said, you don't? You don't believe that when you pray, God answers your prayers? He goes, no, I don't. I said, why, why not? And he said, well, when I was a teenager, I prayed for weeks and months that God would take away the same sex attraction I was feeling. And he didn't. Therefore, my assumption is, God doesn't answer our prayers. Now, why I may disagree with his presupposition, my heart went out to him, because I thought, I don't know what I'd do if that would have been me. And it's not simply a switch that he could turn on and off. Just like I, couldn't tur I can't turn on or off my sexual drive when I was 25. I wish I could have. I wish I could have been sexually pure, absolutely holy, and wildly free. But I understand, and you understand, with our own brokenness, it's not always a switch to turn. And sometimes mercy is the very thing that needs to get to our souls first, along with truth. And so, somehow we have mercy. And you can't look, we can't look at just mercy by itself or truth. Sometimes it has to go together. And again, think about Jesus. The woman caught in adultery where the Pharisees wanted to stone her. And Jesus said to them, Whichever of you is without sin, you cast the first stone. And they all walked away. And Jesus didn't celebrate this woman's immorality, her uh, sex outside of marriage. But he loved her and he said to her, go and sin no more. Truth with mercy. You think about Jesus, he had a party, he was at a party at Matthew's house. Matthew's a tax collector, which in those days they were basically crooks. And Matthew hung out with prostitutes and they were at the party too. Just, I mean, just stop and think about that. The Son of Man, the exalted Jesus, at somebody's house where probably half the crowd were prostitutes. And I'm, I would pretty much sure be sure that Jesus didn't go around telling them, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it. Now let's eat. Now that you've always spoken, now that I've spoken truth to you, let's eat. I'm sure they sensed in him a mercy toward them but they also knew the holiness of Jesus. They, they, they would have, they knew. But it, it blows me away that that's how Jesus dealt with sinners. It blows me away how Jesus deals with me. My freedom from sexual sin did not come because somebody told me the truth. My freedom from sexual sin because I experienced the mercy of Jesus. And I experienced his tenderness and compassion toward my brokenness.
So as, and again, I don't, you can't use your brokenness for an excuse to keep on sinning. Well, I'm broken, God will forgive me. No, but I experienced freedom because of his mercy for me. So here's what's interesting. We'll close with this. When Jesus came onto the scene in John chapter 1, this is what was written about Jesus. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of, read those last two words with me, mercy and truth. Not just full of truth, not just full of mercy, and certainly not affirming all of my desires and uh, fleshly hungers and say he didn't, he didn't come telling people, be yourself, you know, express yourself, follow your own orientation, whether it's hetero or homosexual, be all you want to be. He didn't say that. He was, but he was full of mercy and truth. And the average, ordinary people of the day, they loved Jesus. They were attracted to that. He didn't wag his finger at them. Who did Jesus wag his finger at the most? It was the spiritual, it was the religious elite. That's where he wagged his finger. He wagged his finger at spiritual arrogance. He didn't wag his finger at sexual brokenness. But he didn't, he didn't tell them it's okay to keep being, doing that. He didn't wag, he woke, he woke, what's the passive wag? Wagged, whoa, he wogged his finger, whatever. Dictionary.com, I need help. All right, he wagged his finger at the spiritually arrogant people. He didn't do that to the sexually broken people. And, and, I'll, and I'll finish with this, and it's a story some of you may have heard before, but there was a, there's a uh, Christian speaker, he's a professor named Tony Campolo. He's a, past, uh, he's a pastor, but he also he mainly is a professor. I think he might be retired now, but he was in Hawaii one time for a convention of some kind of you know, spiritual Christian people. And because of the time difference was so great, you know, jet lag and all that, he couldn't sleep. So he went to this uh, diner down the road. And as he's sitting there eating food like at 2 in the morning, he comes to the quick realization this diner is a hangout for prostitutes after they've done their job for the night. It wasn't too hard for him to figure that out. And one of the prostitutes' name was Agnes. And because uh, he could overhear them talking, and she was saying, yeah, it's my birthday. And all the other women were kind of, you know, cackling at her and kind of laughing. And, and she just said, you know, I, uh, I'm just telling you it's my birthday. And some of her peers, her prostitute peers, were kind of laughing. And, and so they just let it go. And then Tony Campolo asked the, the chef at the counter, do they come here every night? He goes, yeah, they come here every night. This is just their thing. After they do their job, they come here every night, and they eat, and they talk. And, and he said, well, Agnes said tomorrow was her birthday. I'm coming here tomorrow night at 2 o'clock in the morning. I'm going to bring a birthday cake for Agnes. And this chef looked at him like, either you're a pervert or you're just weird. Why would you bring a birthday cake to a prostitute? So he, he, he went to some bakery and got, got the cake. Shows up the next night and uh, somehow had organ- orchestrated this birthday cake for Agnes moment. <laughs> and he said, Agnes, and he said, Agnes, let's cut the cake. And of course, they're trying to figure who this weird guy is who brought the cake. Agnes, cut the cake, cut the cake. She goes, no, no, no I don't, I don't, I don't want to cut the cake. I just want to go back to my room with the cake. And they're like, Agnes, cut the cake. It's a birthday cake. And she said, <clears throat> I've never had a birthday cake before. I don't want to cut this one. 
And then as, as she left, all these prostitutes' eyes go to Tony Campolo like, who are you? What, what'd you, what, what do you? Okay, what do you want? What do you want? And he said, well, I, I'm a pastor. And one of the women said, no, no you're not, because if, if that's what pastors do, I would go to a church like that. What kind of church do you pastor? And he goes, I pastor the kind of church that would throw a party for a prostitute at 2 a.m. Compassion, mercy, and truth. That's, and again, I'm speaking to us. I'm not speaking to them. I'm speaking to us. You have friends that have all varieties of sexual brokenness, as do you. We all need mercy and truth to be absolutely holy and wildly free. Don't ever separate truth and mercy from each other. You can't, because Jesus didn't. Um, let's pray. Now, Jesus, to the degree that I, anybody may have in any way misunderstood uh, what I said or heard something different than what I intended, I pray that you'd um, make that clear to them and to me. Um, but most of all, I, I hope, I des my desire is that every one of us sees Jesus. And I don't mean Jesus full of statements of truth, but I want every one of us to leave this morning, God, with seeing Jesus with the woman caught in adultery. I want us to see the picture of Jesus at a party with prostitutes. I want us, us to see Jesus talking with a woman in the well who was on like her umpteenth marriage and had sexual morality um, all over her. That's the Jesus I want us to see. The Jesus who embodied a perfect mix of truth and mercy. That's the kind of church we want to be. That's the kind of followers of Jesus we want to be. And I would even say, Jesus, for those here this morning who may find themselves in a sexually broken cycle. And like I said, all of us to some degree are in that place, but some may feel it very intensely in the last weeks, months. And God, I pray that you would, in the only way, that, in the way only you could do, that you would usher them to your mercy and to your truth. For those who need to hear the truth of how you've designed sexuality, would they hear that clearly and respond accordingly? For those who need to hear the mercy of you toward those of us who are sexually broken, would they hear that as well? God, we want to hear whatever we need to hear from you to make us absolutely holy and wildly free. That's what we want to hear from you because we know that's what you want from, for us. You want that kind of freedom for our lives. So Holy Spirit, you are the one who does your work, and we're open to whatever ways you want to do that in our lives. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. We finish every Sunday uh, at Exodus with uh, communion, and we do it. Um, some of you may have grown up at church, so we did communion every week. And uh, sometimes, understandably, it can feel kind of like uh, ritual and Charlie Brown's teacher. Wah, 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 you know, that kind of. But we do it because it is a ritual, but it's a ritual that, believe, that we believe has deep meaning to it. And the meaning is 
every one of us has a deep need for the mercy and truth of Jesus as expressed through this ritual that we do. Because when you take this juice and this bread into your body, Jesus said you are taking him, his spirit into your body. You're accepting the forgiveness of him into your body. And you're saying, I want more of Jesus in my body. And so uh, the standard here, like I said before, standard here is not perfection. If you've had uh, an imperfect week, um, you're welcome here. I have, I've had said before, and it's true, that if, you, if you're giving God a straight arm in something that's clearly God's saying to do or not to do, and you're straight arming God, it's to your own well-being not to take. But for the rest of us, broken, looking for God, following Jesus people, everybody's welcome. And we don't, we don't check who's up or down. We don't try to pigeonhole you and put you in a corner room and try to figure out what's going on with you. Same time, very happy to talk to anybody about any issues you're wrestling with. Here's how we did it, Exodus. The band will come up. They're going to start us play a couple songs. And uh, we'll, you just, we just don't, you don't dismiss our rows. You just come on up. Um, and we'll serve you the bread, tear off a piece. You tear off a piece. And then we'll offer you the cup. And you just dip it in the cup. That's how we do it here. We don't uh, try to drink out of the cup. No big deal on that one. Just don't, we just dip it in. And then uh, most people eat it right away. Some people take it back to their seats. But again, uh, we all need healing. We all need sexual healing. And in the deepest sense, we all need more of Jesus. So um, you are welcome to the table of Jesus.
Jesus, like I said, your mission for us is that we're absolutely holy and wildly free. That's your mission for us. You are way, way, way more for us than we've ever realized. You are way more powerful than we've ever known, and your love for us is 
way greater than we've ever imagined. So as we leave, um, may God bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you. Uh, may God smile on you. May his eyes meet your eyes. Uh, may he give you peace. And we ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, thanks for coming. We help out if you would. We've stacked the chairs up back in the corner there. So if you're able to stack the white chairs, help us out. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry. That's a quarter.